Hi friends, I'm Felicia. And I'm Diana. And we are the Base Body Babes. And I'm Sebastian, otherwise known as the Australian Strength Coach. Hello, health and fitness lovers of the world. Welcome back to BASE. We are so excited to be bringing you another great mind. Today we have a very special guest. He's a scientist. He has a PhD in clinical neuroscience. He is a senior university lecturer for anatomy and physiology with a passion for educating people on the functioning of the human body. Dr. Mike Todorovich is our go-to scientist. Welcome to the show, Doc. Hey team, thanks for having me. Thanks hey. for joining us. Hey, We're so excited to have you on here. Mike, can you tell I'm us- I'm excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so basically, like Felicia said, I have a PhD in clinical neuroscience. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree in biomolecular science, which doesn't really exist anymore. It's just a science degree basically. Uh, and got first class honours for that and then moved on to the PhD where I focused on the genetics of Parkinson's disease. That's what my PhD was on. Wow. And uh, currently I'm a senior lecturer uh, of anatomy and physiology at Griffith University. And I have PhD students doing research on spinal cord injury and also looking at pain in dementia. So I'm basically a human body generalist. Amazing. Wow. And you're a podcaster too. And we love your podcast. You simplify yes. everything. You make everything sound so easy about the human body when it's just so complex, but not the way you so, explain yeah, it. Yeah, I love education. Love education. Love trying to simplify simplify complex topics. I basically, I've got a podcast with a colleague of mine, Dr. Matt. And so the podcast is Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. So I'm, I'll have to plug it. I'm sorry. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we want you to plug it. <laughs> I've got a YouTube channel as well where I talk about the human body. Yeah, and you've um, got a lot of really subscribers. Well. Yeah, I think we've got 60,000 subscribers awesome. now That's for that, great. which is quite good. And we're on ABC Radio every week talking about the human body. Uh, yeah, we, we do a lot of re- out, outreach basically of education. My thing is Instagram and I come to you every day and I obviously check your stuff every day and you've got a little anatomy lesson and it's a nice little top up. <laughs> so it's just a great all-round guy and a great all-round guy to be following, um, especially if you're in the fitness and, and wellness industry. Um, yeah, as Felicia said, it keeps everything simple, but it's very technical at the same time. But today, actually, the main reason why we wanted to chat to you, I'm listening to you tell us what your PhD was on. Um, It's a little bit different to the topic that we (laughs) want to be discussing. (laughs) We're going to discuss many topics over the coming months, though, with you, Mark. Absolutely. I think we'd love to have you. Like, I am glad that we have connected, um, you know, months ago. uh, You uh, you came to my gym uh, many months ago. And um, I'm so happy that we've connected with you because we'd love for you to be our go-to kind of science guy. We love to debunk stuff from time to time. But we actually forgot to mention that you have an interest in training. I guess that's why you started kind of touching base with Sebastian. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. You you like training for yourself? What's the interest there? Yeah. Yeah, just both my wife and I, we uh, love fitness, love training. Uh, I basically came across Bass's page on Instagram, uh, saw what he does and saw that it was no bullshit, which you don't get when you've got coaches fitness trainers, PTs, there's always some little angle that they're taking, some way of selling a particular product, which sort of just tweaks the truth a little bit or is just downright not correct. But I like Bass's basic approach, which is actually, it's not a basic approach, it's a complex approach, but it 
works on the basic principles which are true. And so I out, basically reached out to Bass, uh, wanted to see if we could do something together. Uh, was Bass and Andrew was kind enough to uh, let me come down to one of your uh, sessions down in Sydney with my colleague, Dr. Matt, who we do the podcast with. And I am constantly learning every day from what you're doing. So, I mean, I love the fact that on Instagram now you can be an educator and you can learn at the same time. I'm learning stuff every day from what I'm seeing, from what you're putting out, which is just awesome. It's crazy. That's the biggest compliment, man. Like this is a guy here with a PhD kind of saying that he's learning off me. And that's how I felt when I had you guys um, in our seminars. And I, was, I remember just going... These guys are making me nervous. <laughs> are the biggest brains in the room, and I remember, I remember looking over to you guys for approval when we're going through the the functional anatomy of all of the movements. Going, how am I going, guys? And I, and I had the nod of approval from you guys, so it's like your, oh, anatomy, your knowledge of anatomy is actually really good. Bass. It's, it's, a, it's a, few, a few levels below these guys, but it's definitely good enough to, to be able to teach uh, the level that I'm teaching at for sure. But. Um, Anyway, that was a huge compliment. Thank you very much for that. Um, what we do, I'm sure that you understand what we do, but we train all sorts of people. My audience is very different to, to Base Body Babe's audience. Um, I train all sorts of people, uh, usually athletic population, and the girls train women only, so they discriminate. <laughs> and they won't, they won't touch you if you're a dude, sorry to say. Um, <laughs> when but, you put it that way. But Fair enough. You know, we're, we're always comparing methods with each other and also comparing feedback from our audiences. Like, for example, I get girls that come to me that have goals of, of competing in powerlifting competitions and strong woman competitions. Girls that don't really... Um, their main priority is performance over appearance and they've definitely got different goals to, to the girls that come to the base body babes for their own training. And... I'd say that the, the main audience that the base body babes have are more general population. What For do you sure. say the, the main goal is? Not performance. No, it's well more aesthetic. Aesthetic and, and general wellness. Yeah. General health. Um, and there's a lot of things that we talk about. They're very proper with the way that they deliver their information. For example, something that I go by with the aesthetic goals of a lot of the women that come to me is most women have a goal to be uh, lower body dominant. Um, a lot of the girls that I train... Uh, when they get to a certain point with their bench press. Like I've got girls that are approaching 100 kilo bench presses, which is for a female, it's it's really heavy, mm -hmm. right? I'm sure everyone can agree. But then they get to a point where they come to me and they say, I've had it a number of times, hey, hey Bass, do you think that my pecs are going to stop growing if I continue to get stronger? And the answer is, well, well, no. That's like the muscle growth is an adaptation for your goals. Your goal is to lift a heavy weight and you've got to build those muscles to support your goals. So what is your new goal? And it's like, well, I get to a point where they don't want to be benching anymore. And I say this to my girls when I start announcing out on social media saying women are lower body dominant, men are more upper body dominant. And Felicia and uh, Dinny, they say to me, you can't be like that because there are girls that are more upper body dominant. And you're going to offend people. And I say, well, it's not a matter of being offensive. It's a matter of the feedback that I'm getting from my audience. If a girl comes to you and is more upper body dominant, do you train her to be even more upper body dominant? And the answer is no. Usually they have the goal of being more lower body dominant. Anyway, I would have to say that the basis of our training isn't so much on science and physiology, but it's more goal orientated so if a girl comes to me and says to me i want to be jacked i'm going to help her get jacked if a girl comes to me and says i want to be petite and feminine i'm going to say you know what why don't you go train with the base body babes <laughs> <laughs> um but what we would love to do although i said we're not really 
like we're, we're kind of guided by science but not led by it, if that makes sense. Um, but we would love to hear your take on the differences, the physiological differences between males and women and how we can use that to, and not just us, our audience would love to hear the differences so that we can apply it to our training and is if there is any difference, put goals aside, if there is any differences with the ways that we should train women um, to men and, and why? What is your take on the anatomical and physiological differences between men and women and how it would relate to the differences that we should be training men and women? It's a, it's a good question and it's a big question. And I think the point that you made to begin with is a really important point because I can start talking about stats. I can talk about the data that's been published within the literature, but that's an amalgamation of averages, And what coaches do and PTs do is they don't train the average population. They train very specific people. And so very specific people have very specific needs a lot of the time. And one person compared to another person can be vastly different. However, when you take a whole population and you average it out, these variances start to diminish. So I can easily talk to you today about the population differences And I think this information is really important for coaches or PTs to have uh, in their tool belt, but it should just be a guide. And I think the most important thing is to listen to your client because your client's going to have very specific goals. And like you stated, uh, the goal of aesthetics or the goal of being the strongest or the goal of whatever it may be, it may work hand in hand with health or it may not go hand in hand with health. So the best thing in regards to the goal may not be the best thing in regards to health. And I'm sure we can all probably agree that certain types of um, sports or even certain types of physique training, especially to the extreme physique training for um, extreme athletes and mm-hmm. yeah, for the stage, Um, when you're on the stage, you're not in a healthy way. So you're not training for health in that point, but that could still be your goal. So there's a lot of important points, I think, to take into consideration. When we look at men and women and their particular needs and differences, uh, there are obvious differences, but I think there's probably more similarities than differences. So if we were to... uh, you know, write up males, write up females, draw a circle around them and then see how much those two circles overlap. You'd find that probably more of those two circles overlap than don't overlap. Um, Those differences are important, but so are the similarities. And so some obvious uh, similarities are the fact that both male uh, men and women can put on muscle size. Both can hypertrophy, which is just growth in the size of the skeletal muscle uh, and both respond to resistance training and hypertrophy in response to resistance training, even the same type of resistance training. Uh, Obviously men have a greater absolute strength and a greater absolute muscle bulk, but it doesn't mean women can't have this if they don't train. So other things that come into consideration are obviously things like the menstrual cycle, metabolic needs, demands. Uh, if a woman gets pregnant, for example, this can change things. So there's a whole bunch of different factors that can come into play. It's an interesting thing that you say, you know, men and women can both hypertrophy. Uh, they both have the potential for muscle growth. And it's a message that when we started off in the fitness industry, that it was kind of like the thing to do was to spread the word that women can't build muscle, so you shouldn't fear coming into the gym and training. And 
I came in and I, you know, I've, I've been working with, I've obviously, I, I've been training with these girls for probably about 20 years, both <laughs> of them. Yeah. And, and I know for a fact that women can build muscle. And, and these girls are petite, but I've definitely worked with women that step up on stage to do bodybuilding, women that power lift and women that just have a goal of building muscle. Mm -hmm. And I know that, as I said, my, my, um, the main... Uh, audience that I have is performance based and when someone comes to me and they go you know I can bench 50 kilograms for example and, and I turn them into a 100 kilogram bench presser something there's an adaptation that occurs and that is is muscle growth their body has to um, adapt in a way that's going to be able to handle the demands of their weight training and muscles grow and you know, we go and spread the message. Actually, women can build muscle, but it's not such a bad thing because, you know, we can help you with where exactly where you want to build that muscle. Like, we, you know, we've got a good understanding of movement and all of the exercises. This is what our expertise is. And we've had times where women come on and they say, you shouldn't be spreading that message that uh, women can build muscle because it's going to scare people off. And it's like, you know what? Um, that's just dumb because there's absolutely nonsense. Women can build muscle. And I think people need to be educated on that. And I think the difference is how you actually train is, is what is important. You have to be able to understand all of the movements and exactly what you can be, where you can be building muscle is up to you. And actually, women with muscle can, can and is actually quite beautiful, actually. Um, you know, that's my preference. I like the determination. I like to see a woman has work ethic as well. And, and that's what's actually really appealing to me. And I know that a lot of people share my opinion. Um, but as you say... Science will tell you that women can hypertrophy. Do you think uh, with, with your research that there is a difference with the rate of hypertrophy between a male and a female and what that comes down to? So if you have a look at some of the studies that come out, if you, have, if you basically normalise for body size and body shape uh, and give both men and women uh, this, a similar resistance training program, they'll both hypertrophy similarly to the same degree basically there may be some differences in which women can hypertrophy a little bit more in the upper body uh, compared to men but it's basically similar uh, now obviously absolute strength and absolute hypertrophy is different mm -hmm. uh, which can be due to some innate differences between men and women including hormone profiles uh, and genetics and so forth but they do hypertrophy in a similar way, in a similar fashion. And so they both do respond to resistance training. So we've spoken about the similarities between men and women. What are some of the differences that you were talking about? Are they hormonal differences mainly? Yeah, so I mean, so you can have a look at, so if you have a look at muscle fibers, for example, so we, we can all basically agree that you've got two major types of muscle fibers, the type one slow twitch, type two fast twitch. The type one muscle fibers, they love oxidative metabolism. So the slow burn, like using fatty acids as an energy resource. And the type two fast twitch muscle fibers generate a lot of force and they're glycogenic. They like breaking down glucose, but they're short lasting and they fatigue easy. And those type one fibers don't fatigue as easily. And so they're usually muscle fibers that are used for uh, postural fibers, for example. Um, now, if you have a look at men and women and take cross-sectional areas and have a look at the fiber differences, you'll find that generally speaking, women probably have more type 1 fibers mm -hmm. compared to men. However, this is very muscle group specific. And so if we look at muscles like the biceps, for example, which is often looked at in these types of studies, uh, women tend to have more type 1, slow, fatigue-resistant fibers compared to men. And vastus lateralis as well seems to be uh, a higher propensity for type 1. Again, one of... Uh, 
there's always a bias sitting in here because researchers can only look at muscles that are easy to look at and biopsy muscles that are easy to biopsy. So we have to extrapolate that data. And so there's some studies that are saying that, you know, overall the fiber difference isn't that different. But there are other studies that basically say, well, you could probably say that women overall have a propensity for type 1 fibers compared to type 2. So what that could mean is women potentially would be better at more endurance type of uh, training, uh, fatigue resistant training. And so there's some studies out there comparing males to females looking at resistance training I think it may have been the bench press looking at a 1RM and then looking at how long the recovery time is before they can do their 1RM again. And it seems that for women, the time period is far shorter than that for men. And so their recovery period is far shorter. So women seem to fatigue less and recover earlier. Mm -hmm. And this may, you know, this type of information can be used any way you want, I suppose, but you could potentially extrapolate that out and make an argument that maybe women could take higher loads in regards to their training and could do split training sessions. You know, they could take higher loads, but do a morning and evening session. Mm -hmm. Maybe for men, lower loads, heavier weight, one session, longer rest period. So those, there is some snippets of evidence in the literature stating that this may be the case. So the first thing that comes to my mind, when I train someone that has an endurance background, you know, I guess the science could say that they've developed their type 1 fibres a little bit better than they've developed their type 2 fibres. And so they come to me and they're type 1 dominant and it would take me a longer time to develop those type 2 fibres and they'll always be uh, showing some type of characteristics of an endurance style of athlete, Um, you know, when we're talking about percentages of one rep max. So if you get 85% of your max, someone who's type 1 dominant will be able to perform more reps of 85% of their max than someone who's fast twitch dominant. Um, But I've always said that it kind of doesn't really matter to me. I'll train someone based on their goal, not on what I think their fibre type makeup is. So if someone comes to me and they've got an endurance background and they want to compete in a sport like powerlifting where they have to perform a one rep max, I believe that I can train that person to be great at one rep maxing. Um, It's a skill. As well as, uh, you know, um, long long term training, developing those the right muscles. Is there, I mean, the studies, I always say, like, this, um, who are they performing these studies on? Is it a matter of when they look at a, a woman and say they're more type 1 dominant, is that lifestyle dependent? Are they getting women who just don't have a history in training and the, and the men that they're training, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of brought up on more explosive sports? Do you think that has... Um, uh, plays a role in in the study results. Like, who are they performing these studies on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the studies are variable, and you have some studies that look at this in athletes, but most of the studies look at untrained people, and they look at untrained people because they assume that when they do some sort of intervention, and it may be resistance training or aerobic training or whatever it may be, that they're going to have more noticeable difference. And they often do have more noticeable differences because obviously there is a ceiling effect in which people who are well-trained are closer to the ceiling and there's going to be the percentage difference is going to be less significant. So a lot of these studies are performed in untrained individuals. I think it's important to have a look at the fact that if somebody's untrained, then there's going to be a greater capacity to get better. Mm. Uh, And so males, generally speaking, have probably got some baseline level of training greater than females. Mm -hmm. 
for the average population. And so when we look at these particular studies, the significant difference seems to happen with the untrained women and not as much with the untrained men because of potential ceiling difference. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that too. Now, we've spoken um, about the muscles. Now, can we talk about fat distribution between men and women? Is there a physiological reason why we distribute fat in different areas of our body? Yeah, uh, and you you hit the nail on the head. So, when we look at fat distribution and fat percentages, so uh, on average, women tend to have about 10% more fat being carried around the body compared to men at any given time. And the distribution is also different. And exactly like what you said, it tends to be the gluteal femoral region. So the arse and hips basically is where Mm -hmm. it's stored for women. And for men, it's more around that midsection. Uh, What we find is that for women, it's more subcutaneous fat. So it's sitting underneath the skin, which is beneficial in the sense that it's you can be utilized as an energy substrate if needed. For men, it tends to be more intra-abdominal, so deeper fat, more visceral fat around the organs, for example, and it's harder to utilize that fat for energy. Um, what we see, and this is really interesting in the literature, if, if we just talk about general health, having that extra 10% for females and having it distributed to the gluteal femoral region is actually uh, cardiometabolically protective for women. But for men, it's not. And so what we find is that men, the more weight that they have, if if men had that extra 10% around their midsection or even around the gluteal femoral region, they'll be more at risk of cardiometabolic effects. So this is things like heart attack, stroke, diabetes, things like that. So this fat percentage difference in distribution is protective for women. Now, we don't necessarily know why it's the case. We know it's hormonally driven in part because we know that as women age and they become more postmenopausal, the estrogen levels begin to drop Mm -hmm. and the dropping with estrogen seems to correlate with that fat actually being distributed in different areas. So now that fat starts to move to the midsection Mm -hmm. and now that cardioprotective effect disappears. And we know that if women take uh, estrogen as a hormone replacement therapy that it can mitigate some of these changes so it is hormonally driven in part Uh, a really interesting point is that women tend to utilize fatty acids as a metabolic substrate more than men men tend to love using glucose for energy women tend to love using fatty acids and so the fact that women have a high percentage of subcutaneous fat that's readily available is beneficial, especially when we look at the menstrual cycle and we look at fertility years and have a look at the different phases of the menstrual cycle. When we look at, so basically when we look at the menstrual cycle, we've got zero to 28 days on average, Mm -hmm. right? And we've got from zero to 14, day 14, right? Smack in the middle on average again is ovulation. The first 14 days is what we call the follicular phase. We're preparing the egg. That egg's getting ready for ovulation. There's two major hormones that are at play here, which is luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone. The luteinizing hormone is what stimulates that egg to ovulate and get released into the fallopian tubes, and that spikes right up just before day 14. After day 14, we've got the luteal phase, and this is characterized by spikes in both estrogen and progesterone Mm -hmm. and those two hormones are anabolic so they're anabolic steroid hormones and they're anabolic in the sense that they promote growth of the uterine lining they're preparing it for egg implantation so it's increasing vascularization it's increasing nutrient demand it's increasing the muscle thickness 
of that endometrial wall as well. So it's anabolic, but it's not just anabolic for the uterus. We know estrogen, for example, is anabolic for bones and muscle as well, because we know again in postmenopause that muscle growth diminishes and we also know that bone density diminishes. Another reason why hormone replacement therapy can be utilized to stop any osteoporotic effects that can happen in postmenopause. So even the menstrual cycle has these hormonal effects and the hormonal effects can affect anabolic catabolic phases. Seems to be in that luteal phase where we've got high estrogen, high progesterone, the metabolic demand for the woman increases as well and their utilization of uh, fatty acids and proteins goes up. And we can see this when we look in bloods, uh, a couple of studies, I think a study came out in nature maybe a year or two ago that looked at blood plasma levels of certain nutrients, vitamins, minerals, nutrients. And they saw that in the luteal phase that fatty acids were down, uh, amino acids were down, which indicated that they were being utilized for growth. And so it tends to be an anabolic phase in that luteal phase. So the, an argument could potentially be made that a demand, a caloric demand or even a nutrient demand for fatty acids and proteins go up in the last phase of the cycle. So, sh- so, so should, you know, should we consider that and think of um, you know, monitoring a menstrual cycle of a female and, and potentially advising a calorie surplus during that time? It's difficult because each individual is is different. The menstrual cycle and the hormone levels, there is a tight interplay there with behavior. And women are really, really good at knowing exactly what's happening with their cycle. Mm -hmm. And so they have these really important cues that come through. And the cues can be, I need more calories coming in. The cues could be, I'm a bit tired, I don't want to train. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a bit of a protective effect. Or I feel like I've got my energy back. Let's, let's go train. And so these are really important to listen to because it's your body basically telling you what's happening and what stage of the cycle you're in. So it, this is where the point I made at the beginning was, you know, we can look at all the data and we can take the averages and we could make inferred um, decisions from it. Mm-hmm. But you could also ask your client and just say, how are you feeling? You know, some clients may have a lot of menstrual pain during menstruation and or discomfort, and this may stop them from being able to engage in exercise. And so there may actually be, you know, things that are physically stopping them from training. Also, the you know, never forget the, the psychological aspect of all this. Mm-hmm. And so there's obviously mood changes that occur and behavioral changes that occur, and sometimes people just don't feel like training. Sure, and you, so should, that needs you to be should come and spend a day with us at our, at our female-only <laughs> studio. <laughs> we get something different every day. Or, or maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't, actually. I, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> it. Um, it's an interesting thing that you're talking about. It's like the body knows what it needs. When mm. a girl craves, it's because she's actually needing it. And um, in my experience, I think it's quite difficult to be intuitive. So um, us being the professionals, we would get women that come to us um, to be guided by us and say, you know, we've got a fat loss journey. This is our goal. Um, what's what's the recommendation? And, you know, uh, let's just put it simply, the recommendation would be to go on a calorie deficit. Uh, what are we doing to the body when it is going through this anabolic phase, uh, the luteal phase, um, and we are depriving from nutrients that it's asking for based on the overall goal is fat loss. Um, I know you feel hungry, but your goal is fat loss, so we're going to maintain this, this calorie restriction. Um, are we doing damage by not listening to the body at this time? So there is something um, called the, the female athlete triad, 
And the female athlete triad is basically characterized by three particular things. And these things can include things like uh, dysmenorrhea or amenorrhea, which is a, a change in the period or an absence of the period. It could also be associated with a reduction in calorie intake, but potentially um, just uh, not eating enough food mm-hmm. um, and can also be characterized by bone mineral loss. So these are the three characteristics of this athletic triad. Um, and when we look at this, so you look at female athletes and you find that, you know, depending on the type of athlete, there's a 20% increase in them uh, having amenorrhea. So no period compared to the population being 5%. So there, there's a correlation between um, exercise or athleticism, mm-hmm. particularly in the extreme, and changes to physiology. And that can include the menstrual cycle. And I think it's important because when we think about the luteal phase, like Bass was saying, that uh, demand, uh, the metabolic demand increases because it's every month the female body is thinking a baby's coming. I'm going to get an implantation. And so it does whatever it can to prepare for that. Um, and so if there's not enough nutrients, not enough fatty acids, not enough glucose, not enough proteins present in order to sustain that, then the body has to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And so some of these decisions can include the fact that, well, there's not enough nutrients to focus my energy on if a egg gets implanted to develop that. And so it puts things into an imbalance. And so I always talk with my students about homeostasis. Homeostasis homeostasis is what controls everything in the body. Mm -hmm. It's a happy, healthy range for everything. So there's no one particular number that's beneficial for anything. So there's no one oxygen saturation. There's no one blood glucose level. There's no one anything. It's always a range. Too high disease, too low disease. That's just how the body works. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at, there's going to be a range of nutrient demand that you can sit within. If you go too low, then you're going to be not looking after yourself. And that can result in, like I said, amenorrhea. It can result in changes in hormones and can result in bone mineral density issues. Again, if happening long term. The good thing is that for a lot of these women who do lose their period through training, um, most just get it back once they drop the training a little bit and increase the nutrient intake. Yeah, I personally Uh, went through that. I lost my period for three years. Mm. So it can, yeah, so it can happen. But it, it, a, a lot of the time it can just come back because the body is, it's this amazing, it's this oscillatory circadian hormone driven pumping out hormones at specific times. And even if it's suppressed, even if it's suppressed due to the contraceptive pill mm-hmm. or suppressed due to um, metabolic demand due to exercise, it can, it kicks back in yeah. once things get back into that happy, healthy range. And is there, um, is it detrimental to like, Childbearing stages, or Later is it fine? Like, does generally, it repair quite generally quickly? speaking, generally speaking, it's fine. Okay, so I'm good. <laughs> I'll be able to have a baby at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. So, so okay, where we're getting with, with that? Um, something that I don't really speak to the girls so much about is their periods. I, I kind of keep away from them if I know that they've got them. <laughs> you just have um, to deal with it once a month. <laughs> yeah, he tells I'm me that I'm in a mood for three three weeks of the month. So three her, out of yeah, four her, weeks, her, and then he's got me. I'm, I'm dealing on the with back my end period. of that. So <laughs> you don't get a break, mate. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's right. It, it's tough being the only guy sometimes. Um, but yeah, so like Dinah just said now, three years. Three years of, no period. Of no yeah. period. Now that um, was because of overtraining. Overtraining. And probably and a calorie deficit. And they're back. Absolutely. They're back. When they're did, back When, now, when yeah. do they come back? They, I've probably had them regular now for about four years. Right. Yeah. So, so would you say she's just back to normal or do you think there's long-term effects that can happen if a girl... Um, I'd, I'd say this was the time when Diana and I were training very closely together mm-hmm. and she was really strong, really lean. She was doing everything by the books. That was it, six days a six, week training. Six mm-hmm. days a week training and they were two to three hour long sessions and yeah. she was a machine. And anyway, so she's saying she lost her period at that time. Yeah. Um, is it like I, I would get people that come to me, the population of the, the clientele that comes to me are performance orientated. Um, is that something that I should be aware of? Like, could I be creating long-term damage on my women? It's not just Diana, actually. I had a girl that came to me asking me. She wanted to survey me. She was doing a study on uh, performance and and, uh, menstrual cycle. And she said to me, uh, you know, you've got some amazing women that you're training. They're all really strong. Um, do Do you change their programming around their menstrual cycle? And I said, to be honest with you, my three strongest women that I train have all lost their cycle. Um... And I, I kind of felt a little bit guilty about that. It's like, shit, is that a, is that a trend? Like, is this a really bad thing? Um, am I safe to say that Diana's back to normal or have we created <laughs> long-term damage? As far as I can tell, the evidence states that in, in most cases, once uh, homeostasis has been restored in the sense that, and it doesn't take a lot, the evidence states that it only takes something like a 10 to 15% decrease in activity and a specific increase in metabolic in, or, uh, nutrient intake mm-hmm. in order for things to be restored. Again, everybody's different. Uh, a generalization is exactly that, a generalization taking an average of a population. Every individual would need to be evaluated for themselves. But most of the time, once those things are restored, it just kicks straight back in. Mm. I mean, I had a few other issues. I had PCOS and endometriosis, so mine, I, I think it just took a little bit longer. But in terms of increasing my um, calories. calories and then decreasing my training, yeah. It that's, can, that's all it takes? That, yeah, I uh, think. And um, so there are, many, there are many factors. Like like you were just stating, I mean, you know, in an individual where everything else is um, – basically normal mm-hmm. and there's no endometriosis there's not, none of those types of things mm-hmm. then yeah usually it will just kick back in um everyone's different yeah. so i think that that's a really important point and so there can be other factors so you may do the right thing and you may bring those calories back in you may drop the training and there may not be a recovery of the period at least not straight away yeah. and you know this is the type of thing that women should have a conversation with the OBGYN about Mm -hmm, and so they'll be able to talk about specifics and they'll be able to talk exactly about what hormones are happening at what particular time and nutrient demands and so forth Mm -hmm. one of the other questions we wanted to ask was is there a healthy body fat percentage between men and women what is that you know that's a really hard question Mm -hmm. so ranges ranges you like ranges yeah it's all ranges well ranges is safe for me, mm-hmm. but ranges is also what's happening anatomically and physiologically. However, it's really difficult to identify a healthy range because we've got to think about what are the parameters, what are the markers that we're looking at here for healthy. Mm-hmm. So again, if if the goal is performance or the goal is physique, then obviously it's going to be very different. Yeah. Uh, if the goal is general cardiometabolic health, it's going to be different as well. Like I said earlier, you'll find that um, women will have about 10% more body fat and that is healthy to have that um, increase in body fat. Um, 
when it comes to specific numbers, I think throughout the lifetime of a man, on average, their body fat's around about 23 to 30%. And for a woman, it's around about 30 to 40%. But again, it's a range, fluctuates. That's much higher um, than what I thought. I, I, I like this but, one as well. But yeah. I don't know if you've got experience with DEXA scans and all of these things, mm-hmm. but I've, I've heard that a lot when people say, oh, you know, up on stage, 6% body fat. And I've heard actual science saying, hang on a second, that's not a fact because if you were 6% or less, you're dead. What's, what's the facts on this percentage thing? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's difficult because every different measurement for body fat will give a little bit of a different mm-hmm. reading because yeah. they do it differently. So you've got DEXA, you've got, you know, displacement of water, you've got displacement of air, you've got infrared, like you've got all these different ways of doing it and there's different types of fat, mm-hmm. right? So there's the, the adipose fat that we, you know, sit underneath our ass and our hips and our gut and that's used for energy but there's also brown fat which we often store around our neck and uh, shoulder region and that's uh, there for heat production and so I'm not sure whether these different uh, methodological approaches determine the differences. Yeah. yeah. So I would be, you know, personally, this is personally, and again, everyone's goal is different, but I'd be less inclined to focus on the fat percentage unless it's really high or really low, obviously, yeah, yeah. Um, and focus on what the goal is. And so you can be, for lack of a better term, fit and fat. Mm-hmm. It really depends on the type. So there's people who would be considered overweight with BMI, but they're healthy. I mean, I'm sure Bass is obese if morbidly. I were to do his BMI. Yeah, morbidly. Yeah, morbidly. morbidly. Yeah. Well, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so, but again, that's a, that's a number representative of, you know, uh, weight according to stature squared, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's a, it's a little algorithm that they use. And what BMI is actually really good for the general population yeah. to associate it with health issues. It's actually a really good marker of that. Mm-hmm. But when you've got a bodybuilder or a powerlifter coming in mm-hmm. they're, and their BMI looks obese, but in actual fact, their cholesterol's great, all their markers are really good, they're healthy, they're fit, it's not the best measurement to use. And so yeah, I agree. Uh, my, my question would be, uh, why does why would one or an individual be focusing on their fat percentage? What is their goal? What is their aim for that? It, and so I think that should be driving everything. Yeah, interestingly, I think it's just one of those like useless pieces of trivia that people just like to know the number. I'm, <laughs> I'm asked that a lot yeah. of the times. So just like, let's just get, um, I don't know if there is a science behind this, but would you have any idea about, you, you see Mr. Olympia, guys like Ronnie Coleman or Phil Heath or whatever, would you have, like, just based on the numbers that you just spat out, like a healthy range for a male, did you say that it was around 30%? To me, that sounds like a really fat guy. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, that's, so 30%, 30% is. Uh, I should have been more specific. As you age, yeah. both males and females increase their body fat percentage. Yeah. And so by the time you're in your 70s, the average is around about 30%. Right. But when you're younger and you're in your early 20s, it's, it's, it's 23%-ish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So either way, that's still a lot higher than my, my um, perception of what a good body fat percentage should be. So it's like a common number that guys are going for is like 10%. Mm-hmm. Like to say I'm sub 10% means you're shredded. Well, I mean, again, it's for me, like exactly like you said, it, in my eyes, it's arbitrary. Yeah. What is it, is it? Is it just something they can hold on to and wave it like a flag? <laughs> I think so. Uh, this, you know, this is me. Uh, and I think a lot of people like to do that. They like to have proxies mm. that represent who they are or what they are. And numbers tend to be big on that. Mm. Um, I mean, I had a DEXA scan at work because the, the 
athletics department was doing it. I said, yeah, do a DEXA scan. And the guy that was the rep that was running, I think I was 11%. And yeah. he goes, he goes, oh, congratulations. Congratulations. That's great. And I said, great for what? <laughs> and he goes, oh, it's, it's just really good. I said, really good for what? <laughs> and he goes, as a number. And I'm like, <laughs> so, so, people so like it's, numbers. It is, it's, it's embedded yeah. in our culture. It's embedded in our minds that there's a number and the number's a goal and we have to hit that goal no matter what. But I mean, are you happy in yourself? Are you yeah. fit? Are you healthy? Are you doing all the things that you want to be able to do? Are you hitting your goals, which may be certain lifts or certain looks? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and if you're hitting those, what does the number truly mean? When you, if you're a <laughs> physique competitor, you're up on stage, do they ask you for your numbers? I don't no. know if they do. <laughs> they definitely uh, do. Hey, I'm coming all in subjective. at 10%, guys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, on again, this, on this topic of on this topic of body fat, um, something that I've heard, I don't know if it's like, it was just like one of those useless pieces of trivia, trivia conversations where um, it could be a complete load of crap, but I'd l- like to know if you know anything about this. A man is, it's innate that a male is attracted to um, a fatter backside of a female because it tells that male that she's healthy enough she's got a body fat percentage that is high enough to be in the healthy range to bear a child is there any merit to this or is it just like a funny joke (laughs) so funnily enough there's heaps of research on this right uh and and the and some of it's a bit dubious and spurious and some of it a lot of it's based on evolutionary psychology it makes sense it makes sense to it, me. Yeah, I, it makes sense and to it me. And it does make sense if you, if, you know, if you look at it superficially, it makes sense. Um, but what humans are really good at is drawing lines between two things that aren't correlated and just correlating them. <laughs> now, from, from what I can tell from what's been published, and I'm not an evolutionary psychologist at all, but these tend to be the, th- the three main answers to your question. So what the research talks about is waist-to-hip ratio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they have a look at a number of individuals. They, they poll a number of males and they ask them to evaluate images of women who have different waist-to-hip ratios. And the lower the waist-to-hip ratio means basically the, the tighter the hip, the wider, uh, the tighter the waist, waist, the wider the hip, mm-hmm. right? Which is the point that you were getting at before. Mm-hmm. Now, it tends to be that among multiple populations that the lower the waist-to-hip ratio, the more attractive it's perceived by the participant, by the male participant. All right, and then the question is why? Mm -hmm. And so an argument could be made that it is an indirect or direct reference to fertility. And so maybe it's an indication that a woman who has a lower waist-to-hip ratio is more fertile. Not a lot of evidence to suggest that is the case, but that could be a particular theory. Another theory is that maybe it's just population specific. Maybe in all these studies, they're polling 17-year-old college boys and that's what 17-year-old college boys (laughs) like. And maybe if you go to a different age or maybe if you go to a different uh, cultural population, maybe another part of the planet, it's not necessarily the case. And then the third factor, which I'm inclined does play a role to some degree, is that our opinion of attractiveness, there's a degree that's innate, but also a degree that is culturally influenced. Sure. And I wouldn't be surprised that over the past 60 to 100 years that the media has demonstrated that, hey, this is what's attractive, mm-hmm. a low hip-to-waist ratio, and therefore it gets embedded in the psyche. And then when you ask a person that they're basically primed to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And so their answer is going to be, I find the low 
waist to hip ratio the most attractive. So I, it is actually a lot more complex than it first looks. I think it's probably a combination of all of it. I don't think you could dispel one or another. I think it's a combination of all together. So can we just go back to um, the, the pregnancy talk? And go back to yeah. postpartum. Well, I'm the only one in this room that's had a kid. Well, he made me have a kid. But yeah, so when we. Not in the same way, though. No. When we had our daughter, I was able to get back into the best shape of my life. Now, is this something that is common that you see or science sees with women? Is there something that happens hormonally to our bodies that enables us to get back in better shape? Um, I don't know. I was able to achieve good body, body composition goals and I just want to know if that's something that happened to me hormonally. So that could potentially be uh, you specifically. Mm-hmm. My, my wife, for example, after She's got we abs, had mate. our daughter. She looks great. I know, and she had a C-section too. So those abs are after having a C-section. Yeah, wow. Um, so, you know, that, but again, I think what's, re- what's probably a really important factor here, I could be wrong, but what's a, an important factor here is fitness prior to pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if an individual is quite fit prior to pregnancy, there's going to be probably a better recovery period and a better rebound period, yeah. shorter rebound period, basically. Now, my wife had a C-section and so she was bedridden for a couple of days. But, you know, apart from that, you know, you've got the separation of the abs that is common and that occurs and you've got to be very careful with that abdominal separation. Uh, and with a C-section, you're obviously cutting through multiple tissue layers, you know, skin, muscle, fat, fascia and so forth. Um, and so recovery is needed there. But I think a lot of the time... Once the baby is born, hormones are going to be produced, which are going to now be protective for nutrients for uh, that baby. So it's going to be things like oxy- oxytocin and progester- um, oxytocin and prolactin are the mm-hmm. two hormones that are going to start shooting through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, and oxytocin we always think about as the love molecule, I think, if you've probably heard of it like that. Yeah. But I always tell my students oxytocin is the love-hate molecule mm-hmm. because they did some studies and they showed that uh, tribal individuals who were just about to go to war, they had a look at their blood serum and the oxytocin was through the roof. And so oxytocin is there to solidify relationships, whether it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing for oxytocin with pregnancies, oxytocin is there to solidify relationships, but it's also there for milk letdown. So oxytocin contracts muscles. And so it contracts the muscles of the breast tissue to push that milk out. But it's also the hormone that gets released during labor to contract the uterus Mm -hmm. to push the bub out as well. Um, So oxytocin is really important. How long do we have that oxytocin release for um, postpartum? You'll have varying degrees of oxytocin being released throughout your whole life, basically. Right. But it's just yeah. But it just it's elevated at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then yeah. with breastfeeding, so I breastfed for nineteen months, and I guess it was probably after. That's great. Yeah, really long time. It was probably towards that end, maybe a year and a half, where I really got heavy into my training and really focused on it. But yeah, I got really lean at that time. I, I think you were in your best shape probably about two w- years. Was it two after. years after? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so how long do our horm- like how long till we come back to that? like balanced level of hormones after childbirth. Is there so, a So you're you breastfeeding for what did you say? Not, 19, 19 months, months, did you say? 19 months. Okay. So historically, 
Um, we breastfed for up to three years postpartum, sometimes four years because milk was the primary energy source for infants. Mm -hmm. And so hormone levels are going to be, again, favoured for feeding the bub and then a lot of nutrients coming in are going to be favoured for that as well Mm. because bub's getting things like not just nutrients but it's getting your antibodies, it's getting protective uh, factors and chemicals in your breast milk as well, which is obviously going to help bub. And so a lot of energy goes into that. And so a lot of women, uh, there's a high metabolic demand throughout that time. Often once the breastfeeding stops, things relatively quickly hormonally wise will go back to a normal rhythm. And this is one of the reasons why women after having a baby can have another baby relatively quickly Mm -hmm. soon after. What is a healthy um, deficit if you're trying to to achieve fat loss when you're breastfeeding? It's a good question and I don't know if if there's an answer to it Uh Um, because obviously uh, weight loss is a a sum of, you know, calorie in, calorie out. Yeah. Um, You know, what you take in, what you burn and and there's multiple factors coming into play here which were never there prior to bub which is I don't know how much energy you burn just by producing breast milk and also how much sleep are you getting? You know, a lot of people, if they don't get enough sleep, they tend to gain weight as well. So sleep is really important to maintain a whole bunch of other homeostatic um, functions. So Mm. I think there's too many factors to to be able to make a statement on it. Mm. I think an individual would need to weigh it up. It's, it's, you know, it would be really important for them to have the conversation with their GP or OBGYN and, and, um, uh, nutritionist or dietitian yeah, about it for sure. um, because it's it's probably not something that an individual should just do on a whim or on their own steam because yeah. there's so many factors coming into play yeah for sure all right i think we are going to wrap it up we've absolutely loved this chat today um, i definitely learned a whole bunch yeah so thank so you right. so much doc thanks for having me Thank you for sharing your scientific perspective. I'm sure our audience has learned a lot as well. So, yeah, we're going to try and get you back on soon. Thanks, Tam. Thanks, Mike. Have a good one. See ya. Bye. 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 See ya.